0: Hi, thanks for listening. This episode of my daily podcast is sponsored by George Hills and the White Horse Insurance Group. Insuring the finest thoroughbreds around the world, George Hills of the White Horse Insurance Group is your trusted partner for your bloodstock insurance needs, providing an independent and bespoke service by horsemen for horsemen. You will find George and White Horse Insurance Group to be a valuable and dependable part of your team. Yes, welcome along to this second episode of the USA interviews brought to you by Nick Luck Daily. Over the next 12 months, I'll be talking to those who lead and those who aspire to lead as the American horse racing industry engages in the most critical battle of ideas in its history. Who is best placed to steer this ship through the choppy waters? Who has the vision, the skill, the integrity, the wherewithal to keep horse racing relevant and to make us care? My guest today is the chair of the Jockey Club, Stuart Janney III. Born into the sport, it was never exactly a million to one that he'd occupy great offices within it. His grandmother, Gladys Mills Phipps, was the doyen of the sport for half a century. She bred Bold Ruler, the Sire of Secretariat and Seattle Slew. Janny's parents owned a racing stable that produced the Hall of Fame Philly Ruffian, amongst many others. And while he succeeded his father quite willingly into the law, his passion for horse racing was a slower burn. Realising a responsibility on his father's death in 1988, he pressed on, his enthusiasm grew, so much so that he was rewarded with a derby winner of his own when Orb cemented the long association between his own family and that of trainer Shug McGahey. But his passion has ended up stretching beyond the barn, and into the sport's corridors of power. He's been particularly visible lately as a key driver behind the establishment of the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act and through his tireless efforts on drug testing and medication reform. A recipient of the Eclipse Award of Merit in Florida recently, he was described by McGay as taking on the tough and unpopular issues in the sport, guided only by his principles and doing the right thing for the sport. But not everyone is impressed my first guest in this series the billionaire self-made businessman and aspiring racing commissioner mike rapoli said stuart janney is part of the problem of the game he needs to get fired what does he know about the game stuart janney hasn't done anything for racing stuart janney welcome thank you <laughs> what do you feel when you when you hear the assessment of of mike rapoli let's get that out of the way first you
1: know, I, I've never thought that, that you got anywhere by spending a lot of time listening to people uh, criticize you. I think, you, you know, you you analyze it, you see whether you think it's fair. There have been times, certainly when I've been criticized, where I thought it was fair comment. I'm not sure with him that, that that's that's true. Um, you know, just a couple of very quick things to say. Uh, when you did have him on your show, um, you know, he said he supported Haiza. Well, we've done that. And we never heard from him when we went through that process, which took more than five or six years to get done. He said he supported the mayor, Cap. Never heard from him. And that's in contrast to his sometimes partner, uh, Vinny Viola, who was incredibly helpful on both those things so you know my view is you get things done and let let things uh let people look at them and decide what they how they feel about it but just talking about it doesn't really get things done is it
0: possible that you're actually two sides of the same coin even though you are born and bred into the game and mike Rapoli is uh, Mike from Queens, the self-made billionaire who's done incredibly well through through his business exploits, that in fact that you you would both uh, stand by the the app of them. You're not going to make an omelet if you don't break any eggs.
1: Oh, I think that's true. Um, a lot of eggs have been broken over the last decade. Uh, I think our progress has been incremental. I would say that that there's always a seductive. Uh, Lure to uh, great leaps forward, and when they're possible, I'm all in favor. As long as you're going in the right direction. Uh, when I first got into the sport, uh, there was a huge amount of talk about commissioners and 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 about owners running the sport, and I was part of those discussions, and they really didn't go anywhere. And I am my own time is going to be spent accomplishing the things that can be accomplished within. The foreseeable future. And and what I tried to say at the Eclipse Awards was we're learning how to get along as an industry. Out of Haiza, there's pretty much a weekly meeting of the important groups in racing. I'm not part of it. Jim Gagliano at the Jockey Club is part of it, but it would have the Breeders' Cup, it would have the Tracks, it would have uh, Tom Rooney, etc. And they go through the week and they decide what things are important and how we should react. Now, that is a far cry from where we were pre-HEISA. And I hope that that kind of behavior is gonna translate into other things. For instance, the Jockey Club commissioned a study by McKinsey of how do you organize post times. And McKinsey proved, I think, to everyone's satisfaction that if you organize them properly, and didn't have people stepping on each other one race after another, that the betting would improve remarkably, and it went nowhere. To me, that was the ultimate low-hanging fruit. Uh, I would hope we revisit that, because I think that it's still low-hanging fruit, but I think that people have to learn how to communicate and cooperate, and so that's what I've tried to
0: push in 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 my tenure at the jockey club it's it's quite interesting that as a fundamentally someone who appears to be conciliatory by by nature um you should have divided opinion so sharply particularly in this in this last 12 months just before i move on is it is it true that your your children actually fast forwarded through the ripoli episode just so they could get a get a laugh out of hearing hearing the roast
1: that's true. Um, <laughs> I think that speaks to the good relationship I have with my children. Uh, and and I assume that they have thought that I was infallible and that this was um, uh, some indication that maybe that was not true and they needed to, uh, uh, to absorb it. Uh, if something else is the case, I don't want to hear about it.
0: Can we dial it all the way back? I was doing a little reading and... I, I said that given the family you were born into, your own interest was a bit bit of a, a slow burn. Is that is that right?
1: My father was a great race rider and I decided that I would never be the race rider that he was. Uh, I was probably a little tired of uh, very nice older ladies saying, do you ride like your father? And the answer had to be no. Uh, But I grew up in a community where people perceived that your interest in racing started by being on the back of a horse. And after about the age of 12, that's not where I could be found. Uh, So, you know, I think people were a little bit surprised when I did take it up, but I'd always cared and vicariously uh, cheered on my parents and knew what they were doing and saw how much they enjoyed it. And when my parents died, which was pretty much at the same time, I thought about whether I should just disperse the stable. And I knew that if I did that, that I'd never take it up again. So I thought I'd give it a try. Uh, I was very busy on some other things, and um, frankly, it schedule-wise didn't suit that well. On the other hand, uh, I almost immediately got into a wonderful association with my Uncle Ogden Phipps. Um, Funny story there, he came and and said, look, Stuart, you don't know everything you probably need to know about this. I'd love to be your partner on whatever horses that you'd like uh, to make me a partner on. Uh, And maybe Denny, my, my cousin, he can be the other third, or he can be a quarter and you can be a half and whatnot. The only condition I have is that I'd like uh, you to use my trainer, Shug McGahee, and you keep the trophies and I will only give you advice. I will never uh, give you advice that you don't ask for. Uh, It was a wonderful association. Uh, I laughed because uh, at a certain point in time, Denny called me up and said, well, my father just told me at breakfast this morning that we're I'm not in the partnership. He wants to be just 50, 50 with you. So that's the way it was for the longest time on certain horses. When he died, then uh, became, uh, the substitute partner. That's how it ended up that we owned orb together. But, you know, those were associations that made certain that I, I was going to love this sport. Um, Sugar and I have been together for forever, it seems. Uh, my wife laughs that uh, I don't really talk on the phone very long to people, but the two of us seem to figure out a way multiple times a week to spend lots of time talking about horses and life. But those associations have been important, and, and uh, uh, they've been great for me. And Denny's example of service to the industry was also important to me.
0: Why did you get involved with with racing politics? It's so often um, a viper's nest, and not something anyone would willingly do uh, for the dare I say it for the fun of it. What drew you into it? Denny pushed me to be involved first in Maryland's,
1: w- where I got on the board of the Maryland Horse Breeders, and then became head of the Maryland Million. Uh, so I kind of started small, and 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 not to say that it was particularly rewarding but but it, i i enjoyed this the association with the people uh that were on that board and uh so that got me going and then the next big thing was he didn't call me and said look we just had the tragedy at the kentucky derby with eight bells he said we really have to step forward on on safety and i want to have a committee and and i'd like you to chair it uh, which I did. And I did that for a long time. The, the other thing is that, that if you're around this sport, there are a lot of people that um, uh, that you come to admire, that you enjoy being around. And you know how worried they are that this sport is losing its grip. Uh, you might see a trainer that you particularly admire, and you, you would see, you know, fewer horses or Uh, horses being taken away by another trainer that was maybe using something they shouldn't. Uh, And I got a little bit tired of seeing that and I wanted to do something about it. Um, So I got kind of dragged in and then I got to the, you know, position of being either vice chairman or chairman of the jockey club. Previous to that, all the meetings I'd had, whether it would be with other owners or whatever we, we were pretty good at identifying the problem. And we would um, sometimes have reasonable solutions, which we talk about, but nothing got done. Uh, and the reason it didn't get done is none of us really had a staff and we all had day jobs. And, uh, you know, we'd talk about the same problem two months later and nothing would get done. And I realized when I got to the jockey club that I had a very talented group of people that. There could be a meeting. There could be a list of things that needed to get done and they'd get done and they'd get done really well. And that's pretty much my operating style is to delegate to good people and, you know, hopefully encourage them, make sure they got the resources. And um, when they're in difficult waters, you know, to be decisive and, and maybe a calming influence. So that's, that's sort of what the story is
0: you have led uh, a real crusade against um illegal medication what first really aroused your suspicion that this wasn't just the odd case of somebody having a little bit of this over over the limit but was a was a systemic problem in the sport when when did you first realize that
1: well first of all um there were people that whose judgment i respect who told me from their perspective that they thought things were veering way off course that drug drugging was a problem before now it was becoming an epidemic and I know the day that that um uh, that I just in a sense snapped uh it uh, it was one of those great fall days at Belmont where there were four or five good stakes races. And I can't remember whether I was in one of them or somewhere on the undercard, whatever, but I was there. And I was convinced that pretty much all those races had been won by people that were taking an edge. In fact, I can remember going into the men's room to avoid Congratulating somebody who just won a race because I didn't think they deserved
0: it. And why why? What what was it that made you so convinced? Because we all we've all heard race course rumor, gossip, whisper, oh, this trainer must be a juicer, this person must be up to no good, this horse is rebreaking. We've heard all this stuff. How how from your experience and what you were hearing anecdotally, did you know in your heart that this was happening?
1: Well, I don't think you know in your heart but you, you just don't believe the alternative. And it's for all those reasons that you've just mentioned. Horses re in the stretch. They're not really re The other horses are slowing down, and they're able to run through those horses because they've got better oxygen content in their blood, I think. Um, it's looking at a horse and going back through their pedigree and seeing there's not one single... Ancestor that's ever accomplished what this horse just accomplished. Now, that isn't to say that it can't happen, but when it happens weekend after weekend, I think you need to be suspicious. It's when you see gaudy strength trainer statistics, you know, almost anybody in the Hall of Fame that's a trainer is somewhere around 20% winners. Well, there were people that were 30%. These are not geniuses. I can remember having a conversation with one trainer, leading trainer and saying, look, um, this other trainer that's doing awful well, I understand your work habits, but I'm hearing his work habits are not so great. Well, how come he's beating you all the time? You know, things like that. I mean, it was a combination of things. And I just said to myself, look, When you get into this sport, you better recognize that 80% of the time you're going to get beat and then you're doing fine. But if you are going to get beat more than that and you're going to believe that the people that beat you are cheating, I certainly hope you're not going to stay in the sport. I mean, had I not been able to feel that we could make progress, I would have been long gone.
0: There's no way in the world I would have stayed in the sport. Is it is it possible, uh, let's say at a high level, because I, I know it's difficult to apply this brush across every racetrack in the United States, but is it possible at a reasonably high level to be a trainer and win at, say, north of 26 27% and not be cheating? I don't know. I don't know. I would love to think that
1: with Haiza that we will clean the sport up to the extent That we will know, but we don't at this stage know. That isn't casting an aspersion at anybody. I'm just saying you can't you can't prove out that case. Hmm.
0: But as if you're saying on one hand, I knew because I just didn't recognize this as within the realms of possibility, and then on the other hand, saying you're not sure it could be possible that you could Could. clip 26, 27, 28 percent and be doing it perfectly legally. How do you reconcile those two positions?
1: I think you do what we did you go out and find some people to investigate and either prove out your case or uh, tell you that your fears were unfounded uh, that's exactly what we did I you know to finish the story I came back and and out of that day at Belmont and I called Jim Gagliano on Monday morning and I said you know I've had enough um, we have to do something and uh, Jim said well what should we do? We can investigate. We can go to the New York racing commission. I said, going to the New York racing commission. Now the, you know, gaming commission is a complete waste of your time and my time. They're not going to do anything. And that has proven consistently to be the case. So we're not going to do that. We either go home with our football or we figure out something better. And uh, Jim got on that, and uh, you know, we interviewed some people that we didn't think could get the job done. Uh, through Travis Tiger at Gusada, we uh, got a name, and that was Five Stones. They were different.
0: This is just, uh, we didn't, just for those who aren't familiar with with the story, Five Stones is a is an investigative private investigative firm.
1: Yes. And instead of being ex, police they tend to be XDEA, FBI, maybe people in the intelligence community they're more wired into uh, the web, uh, sort of the new way one commits crimes uh, and the new way that one investigates crimes. And they uh, they took the job and came back fairly quickly uh, within a month or so and said, look, you know, there's a lot going on here and it's not good. And we actually believe we found somebody, uh, that's very central to what's going on. And my reaction was that, you know, we've been looking and looking for a long time. I'm worried that you found it too quickly. It might not be the right answer. Well, it was the right answer. It was the guy that, you know, was down in uh, Florida that was the compounder and, and, uh, is now in jail. Um, but the thing that I think Jim and I didn't really understand is where were we going to go with this afterwards? And the answer really was provided by five stones because they called us up and said, well, you know, they'd been down to the FBI or a government building in Miami, and they'd met with the FBI and the DEA and They'd gone through the names and a lot of those names were of interest to them in another context and, um, you know, more meetings to follow. And so suddenly, uh, you know, we had a full-blown investigation and I I would also not only give credit to Five Stones for sort of getting us to that point, but they were also very important in making sure that the right people in the government we're gonna look at this, that they really would care. And, um, you know, we got people like Sean Richards, who's now the chief investigator for HISA, to run it. Sean knew a lot about um, doping. His parents had uh, been in the trotting business, had a farm in New Jersey. He knew what people did uh, and he wanted to correct it. And we, you know, he led a very good effort that could have been a very mediocre effort if it was in other hands.
0: When, when maximum security passed the post first in the Kentucky Derby in, in 2019, did, did you know for sure? Did you know by then that Jason service was, was one of the guys who was routinely doping his horses? Yes. How did that make you feel when you saw the horse pass the post in front in the full knowledge that this guy was under, under the microscope and that you had evidence that he was doping? How did it make you feel that the sport could, could see that unwittingly?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, sick that that was the result. But I always felt that in order for the sport to recover, it had to understand how far it had fallen. I mean, that's sort of the lingo that you would hear about people that have got, you know, challenges with substances or something else. You have to know where you are before you can get better. And it would be lovely in in any world to be able to correct something without there being evidence of a problem. So in a sense, I was sick. On the other hand, I said, you know, if this all plays out the way it might, this will give impetus to getting to a better place.
0: If the horse hadn't been taken down, what do you think would have happened retrospectively, particularly given the fact that we're now in this protracted affair with, with Saudi Arabia?
1: Well, I think... Uh, uh, it, a lot of it might have played out a little bit the way it has played out in Saudi Arabia, with the exception of the fact that the Saudis are capable of doing things that probably Kentucky and Churchill couldn't have done. Um, because, you know, when that horse finished first over there, um, you know, we made very sure that the Saudis were alerted to what was going on, and the, our government people, you know, were able to uh, impart some degree of knowledge that that not all was well, and suggest that nobody should write a check very quickly.
0: Perhaps the more important question is when you knew that maximum security and horses in that barn were or had been the recipients of illegal formulae or illegal substances, why weren't your testers picking it, picking them up?
1: Well, the, our system at that point for testing was ridiculously bad. We were testing uh, on a least cost uh, basis, testing a lot, but testing very poorly with no quality controls, no blind tests, no no nothing, and the only thing we were picking up, in my view, was accidental overages. So people that were doing stuff that was sophisticated and effective had absolutely no concern about being picked
0: up. All right. So let's let, let's. Back, I just want to. I just want to clear this up. So. When you hear people complaining, as Mike did in the previous episode and several trainers have done about picograms over the limit, they're talking about environmental contaminants or, or in some cases, accidental overages, um, messing up the withdrawal time for medications that are legitimate, if you like, in, in training. You, you you accepted that all of that was being picked up, but not anything that was actually... Some of it was being picked up. ...dying a drug.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, first of all, I don't want to go too deeply into it because I don't think I'm the greatest expert, but I mean, there's no question there can be uh, accidental contamination. And in some cases, the test is sensitive to picking up uh, something that they don't think should be there. Mm -hmm. But where the tests were completely missing was in the whole, for instance, blood doping area, where you're using a natural substance to, to boost the blood. And that was shown to be true in, in, in biking. And it, you know, really requires a very sophisticated test. It requires knowing what the windows are where you can actually detect something. And it also requires, you know, a degree of, of pre-race and surprise testing. None of which we were doing, and you know I remember testifying in Congress, and uh, really the most ludicrous um, statement made by uh, the Horseman's representative at that meeting was to tell uh, the uh, at the hearing that that uh, at that point Usada was very much in the forefront of possible uh, regulatory. Uh, entity to be used, but to say uh, they weren't qualified because they hadn't been doing testing on horses, but had only been doing human testing. Well, number one, I I won't get the percentage right, but we share our DNA with a horse to a 99% degree or somewhere in that range. Secondly, almost all the stuff that was effective in racing was coming out of of human medicine a lot of it coming out of cancer where people needed to have their blood fortified after chemo so the idea that um they were not qualified uh struck me as just an absurdity and proved
0: out to be such just explain what you mean by doping the blood naturally or with natural substances
1: well, my understanding of, of EPO and a lot of those offshoots are that that those things occur naturally in the blood. And what you're really trying to do is increase them so that you increase the carrying capacity of the blood uh, as far as oxygen is concerned, which allows a horse not to run faster, but to run further at, at its naturally uh, somewhat near top speed. Uh, that's why we always have the expression rebreaking uh, where you'll look at a race and you'll see a horse that's not doing particularly well down the backside where the jockey might be a bit busy on the horse trying to have him keep up and you think well that's we can eliminate that horse that horse not going to win well they come into the stretch and suddenly that horse wins well it gives you the impression visually that the horse has you know hit another stride well Actually, the time for that quarter is the slowest of the race, and that horse has just kept running at its natural speed. And other horses are—they're tired. Um, that's the magic of—I of, think EPO and some of its derivatives.
0: Okay, time to take a quick pause. I hope you're enjoying this interview with Stuart Janney the Third the chairman of the Jockey Club. And I would imagine that you were both as intrigued and somewhat surprised as I was listening to his first-hand testimony of his own journey of discovery as regards doping in American horse racing, the execution of it, uh, his own inspiration for getting on the case of those he believed to be cheating and getting an unfair advantage, and then his own feelings when he witnessed a horse that he knew to have come from a barn that was up to no good passing the post first in the Kentucky Derby. Of course, we all know what happened after that, and I'm sure that might have prompted one or two thoughts of your own. It's here I've got to thank our sponsors of this episode as well, George Hills and the White Horse Insurance Group, the first time a George and White Horse have partnered up with a Nick Luck Daily Podcast. Uh, they insure the finest thoroughbreds around the world, and are your trusted partner for all your bloodstock insurance needs, providing an independent and bespoke service by horsemen for horsemen. And you'll find George Hills and the White Horse Insurance Group to be a valuable and dependable part of your team. Now, a bit later in this interview, I talked to Stuart Janney more about the wider governance of the sport, about jurisdictions getting together, whether some of those strategic and marketing goals that Mike Ripoli was advocating can actually be achieved. And if they can then how? But back to regulatory matters, to doping specifically, and I continued by asking Stuart Janney whether Heiser, the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority, was addressing some of those deep concerns that he was describing.
1: I think they've made progress. I, 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 As I watch the races and I listen to other people that watch them, you know, to a greater extent than I, particularly people that bet, I'm not much of a better, so you know, I'm not watching races after race, one after another. But, yeah, I think we're we're
0: making a lot of progress. And are they specifically testing for EPO at the right point across the... I, I don't know, Nick. I mean, I, not my job.
1: They, and, you know, the, and one of the things that I always laughed about was we were so busy telling everybody what we were testing for in the old days uh, that it was like putting a sign up saying, you know, uh speed camera uh coming up here so you know don't speed um it would have been better i think to have caught a few people if we could have and i would certainly encourage Heiser to be fairly uh circumspect about what they're testing for and how they're testing it
0: let me talk to you about bob Baffett and churchill downs and the situation that we currently find ourselves in as a sport because we've all been drawn in to the dispute between Churchill Downs and and Bob Baffert. Given the fact that his suspension, his initial suspension elapsed, what do you make of Churchill Downs' unilateral decision to maintain the ban on Baffert-trained horses running in the Kentucky Derby or qualifying for the Kentucky Derby?
1: Well, I'll, I'll preface my remarks by saying this is one where I really don't have a dog in the fight. Uh, there have been occasions where I guess Mr. Baffert has thought that that uh, the jockey club did have a dog in that fight. I, I had a peripheral uh, interest as a board member at Naira because Naira was also involved in what to do about him. Um, my understanding is that uh, Churchill uh, has given him a list of things that he needs to do and that maybe not all those things have been done. So the ban continues. Um you know we're in sort of this gray zone uh the, the Bafford case is a transition matter between the old system and the new system of HISA. and HISA legislation says that HISA can't look back so they really they're also pretty much not involved churchill obviously takes a very strong view about their property rights and their ability to uh, have the people on their property that they want to have and not have others. At Nairo, we've also felt the same way, that that was very important uh, because in the past, we had no particular faith in the regulatory people to police what was
0: going on on the backside. But now you do do still have faith in the regulatory process. Now you do. So I think so we so are if, gonna- if we as a sport have faith in the regulatory process now under HiSA, surely it's undermining that regulatory process. If you've got a property like Churchill Downs acting, continuing to act with impunity.
1: Well, they're acting over an incident that occurred before HiSA.
0: Yes, but they, they yeah. have had, they've had ample opportunity subsequent to the initial ban to now say, right. We are prepared to shelve in with the HISA regulations, the initial ban. Well, HISA been...
1: really had nothing to say about what went on with Bafford during that period surrounding, you know, Medina Spirit, et mm. They don't. I mean, that's right in the law. And do so.
0: You, do, you, do you see how this looks at best anachronistic and at worst quite petty to the outside world? You know, everybody can have their own view. I know that that
1: having watched what what happened both in New York and in Kentucky had. Bob Baffert had a different legal strategy, he would be back in, you know, good standing in Kentucky. And that is my view.
0: And that's your view. That's your view as a lawyer rather than as a regulator. As a lawyer. Yes. All right. So where did he go wrong? from a legal perspective?
1: Well, I don't want to, I I can't make another man's case for him. That's I'm not going to do that. I I haven't practiced law for a long time. I don't think I've got my lawyer's insurance card in place.
0: (laughs) So have you not just answered my question in a roundabout way? If you think fundamentally he was let down by his own legal team, then does that not further add uh, substance to the view that this ban should not be continuing and it's not really good for the sport. Is it good for the sport that some of its best athletes are not running in its best race?
1: I think it would be great if, you know, the best horses were running in the best races, et cetera. But I don't think that Churchill was wrong to give him a list of things that needed to be done and said, uh, particularly after what he did say at the very beginning of the incident. So, uh, you know, again, I will say I'm not going to really get too deeply into the weeds. And
0: uh, I'm quite pleased that I don't have a dog in that fight. Um, In terms of New York, in terms of of Naira, you you definitely still do have a a dog in that fight, right? He's back back racing it at Naira. Yeah. Um, You know,
1: there was a hearing. um, I think that... uh, it was very important for Naira to prevail in that hearing because it did raise the question of our control of our, of our place, of our property. And, um, I mean, it was a complete and utter success for Naira. It was very well, uh, uh argued by our attorney and, um, and there was a very good hearing officer that was a retired judge and, uh, we prevailed, uh, completely. So that that's fine, and that's behind us. But uh, he he's fulfilled his uh, obligations to stay off the property, and he's back in good standing.
0: You've taken a a few brick bats this this year for appearing on the sixty minutes documentary, the CBS sixty minutes documentary. Um, people s- accusing you of effectively dancing with the devil or shorting horse racing stock, whichever um, analogy or metaphor you you choose to use. How would you respond to that?
1: Well, um, 60 Minutes uh, began uh, looking at this as a project, when the federal government gave them exclusive use or access to the wiretaps. Uh, they came to us after that. Um, they'd been further encouraged by Jeff Gorrell who Uh, owns the Meadowlands, who'd contributed to Five Stones' uh, investigation, who was uh, very upset, rightfully so, that a lot of um, bad activity had occurred in the trotting game. And basically the leadership of that industry decided they didn't want to clean it up. So he is a lonely voice at the Meadowlands. So encouraged by the federal government on the access to the wiretaps issue and i mean wiretaps and jeff corral they came to us and said you know we we want to do a story um the story is people got fed up with the amount of cheating in racing hired some investigators the investigators went to the federal government the federal government launched an investigation uh, it's the largest uh, such investigation the results were great people went to jail uh, a new law was passed in congress and racing is on a different path to me that was a good story we we said a couple things number one you can't use stock footage of horses breaking down on the track number two you can't have PETA or horse racing wrongs on the program. If you do, we will not participate. They said we have no intention of doing either of those two things. So, you know, there were various meetings. Um, Unfortunately, at about the same time that they were preparing to do interviews, 12 horses died at Churchill during the run up to the Kentucky Derby. And it was the biggest story in racing because every correspondent who doesn't care about racing the other weeks of the year was sitting at Churchill Downs. So it was a huge story. They came to us. I have to give them credit. They were honest. They said, look, this has become part of what we have to do. We can't walk by this story. We said, we understand. So they interviewed me right before the derby. They interviewed me for three hours. Two hours was the original story. The last hour was a very uncomfortable hour, which was all about breakdowns on the racetrack. And they had, because as you can imagine, they're coming to this story. For the first time, they had some maybe simplistic ideas about what it was, and I tried to say, no, it's not that. It is many different things that can contribute to a fatal accident. Uh, they thought racing two-year-olds, because they'd been told that was a dangerous thing to do. I said, no, it's not. Um, but anyway, long story short, they interviewed me on that subject. They also went out and spent the entire morning at Sug McGahee's stable and at Belmont taking pictures of horses getting a bath, exercise riders getting their instructions, etc. So I, I really do think that their intention was to make this much more a story of racing improving than it was a hit piece. The next thing that happened just when they're editing the story is we lose two Wonderful horses at Saratoga, right at the finish line, at in big races with packed crowds, and you know we never really heard from them again. They were doing their editing, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, unfortunately, when we said you can't use stock footage of horses breaking down on the racetrack, they didn't need to. They had the horse, They had the races at Churchill. They had the races at New York. You know, I believe that when somebody's going to do a show and they are going to do that show, you've got to be there. I remember as a kid watching 60 Minutes and they'd knock on some person's door as they're about to come out in the morning and chase the person across the lawn, firing incriminating questions at them as they're trying to get in their car as
0: quickly as possible but were you were you, and, wor- were you worried that you'd be leaving your house in, in maryland and you'd be getting <laughs> chased by by somebody <laughs> shouting mr jenny mr jenny mr. why did 12 horses die at churchill downs mr jenny do you have blood on your hands mr jenny is that what you were envisaging?
1: <laughs> i wasn't worried about me but i was worried about what it would look like for the sport yeah and know. you know i just like you, you got to go and you got to argue your case and my case was had several different prongs to it not all of which got into the show
0: you you've been you've been you've been studying um horse racing safety and integrity for an awful long time now it's a personal project passion call it what you will and you have very clear ideas even before the service navarro case as to whether you felt horses were being doped based on your own experience. So based on your own experience of the sport and how it's developed over the years, why do you think, even though numbers of fatalities have fallen across the board, why do you think we've had so many high-profile fatalities in the last 12 months? That spate at Churchill Downs, these two really high-profile fatalities at, at Saratoga. It seems in the biggest races where the public are watching and the scrutiny's on, we seem to be stretching these athletes to an almost unbearable point. What is your view on why that's happening?
1: I think, first of all, I don't know. I I, I think probably a certain amount of it is bad luck. We're doing, we're just now finishing a study that we have commissioned from McKinsey to look at all this. Not in the sense that McKinsey is the world's leading expert on horse safety, but they're really, really good at statistics and breaking things down and what statistic tells a story and what statistic is just noise but you
0: don't think this is you don't think this is medication related
1: it, it certainly is playing a part um you know we all know that there are two ways that medications used if not more ways but certainly one is to produce you know a horse that will finish first and one is to mask pain and they actually are pretty much interrelated because a horse that is in some degree of pain is not going to finish first unless there's something done to mask that pain. And you know, how that's being done. We all have our stories about seeing horses that come off the track, not looking uh, completely sound on Tuesday and turn in a masterful performance on Saturday. That that's a part of racing. Um, so that, that's certainly part of it. Um, I think that track surfaces are, are an important part.
0: Is dirt, uh, race, is dirt racing done? Is that done? Uh, do, you, do, you, do you believe that in the next decade? Well, I, you know, not to get
1: ahead of McKinsey, but um, what I think is being said is in areas where you've got big weather changes, uh, where you've got temperature changes, rain, no rain, et cetera, keeping a dirt track safe is a real challenge. And Glenn Kozak, who I think is as good as anybody in New York would say that. And keeping a synthetic track safe during that period is a much easier task. Uh, So no question that that in lots of ways, uh, synthetic is safer. Uh, but I don't know whether that means that dirt tracks are finished. I don't think they're finished next year, but I do think that, you know, if you wanted to bet on what we'll be doing more of five years from now, I would take the bet on synthetics in lots of ways. It, it, it helps um, from a business point of view too. a couple of examples. Uh, Naira will leave Aqueduct in a couple of years. We're not really racing Belmont's, you know, out of the picture. Financially, it will probably be better off to put a synthetic track in at Aqueduct for just two years, because, you know, when people scratch off, when they scratch the race off the turf and you're down to four entries on the dirt, you don't have a betting race. So I think Naira management would look at it and say the ability to have a good betting race when you have to take it off the turf is, you know, fundamentally a good business decision. Take the situation in Maryland where Pimlico is going to be in all likelihood, the only track. Well, Maryland's got a very good turf program, but they if they had just a dirt track and a turf track and they wanted anything but a boutique in the spring and the fall, the turf isn't going to stand it. So you're pretty much going to have to have a synthetic. And the question then becomes, do you have three different tracks or do you have a synthetic and a turf? That is something they're going to have to figure out. I I met with some of those folks in the last, a day or two, and you know, that's something on their mind because you simply can't run on the turf all the time.
0: Is there a future to the Triple Crown? It's ironic that I asked the question, but six years after a Triple Crown winner who came, but three years after the previous Triple Crown winner. And in the mid 2000s, people were saying, Well, there'll never be another one. Then there were two. Now it seems less likely than ever. How have we managed to foul up one of the greatest assets that the sport? has and should have
1: well there yeah we're in a we're in a, a box uh that's hard to get out of uh moving the races is going to be difficult because of other sports commitments by the networks and uh, the feeling that at a certain point in time uh, you you get into the summer doldrums there, there are all sorts of reasons um you know, I my sense is that, for instance, Fox, who's doing the uh, uh, Belmont uh, at this point, um, you know, their interest is getting a triple crown uh, as a as a as a possibility at Belmont time. Mm-hmm. So they're not particularly interested in a strong Preakness. If the Preakness race is going to be uh, the Derby winner and you know non winners of whatever. Uh, that's fine Uh, so everybody's interest is is nuanced and different we're going to have a situation in all likelihood in maryland where the preakness has to go to laurel and that will be for two or three years uh a more uh unattractive preakness location i can't really think of so we got challenges
0: Mm, there are challenges and this sort of brings me now back to what I would consider to be sort of more Rapoli-ish territory, if you like, when you're talking about the marketing of the sport, because we've talked a lot about the regulation of the sport, and you have a very kind of strong regulatory pedigree and background in what you've done with Heyser and, and the dope testing and and so on. The questions, it seems to me, that are now most po- potent, concern whether you can whether you can unify governance in the same way that you can unify regulation. And we talked about those three triple crown entities, Churchill Downs, Naira, and now First Racing. Um, Three big organisations that all have significant influence in the sport, but are not all necessarily at all times pointing in the same direction from a strategic and governance point of view. How does the sport um, overcome that? And is this where we're now in need of, to go back to your first point that you raised, the commissioner?
1: Well... You know, there's. I think it's first of all important to think about what a commissioner does. Uh, a commissioner, for instance, would determine when we're going to hold the Triple Crown. Mm. Might also determine where we're going to hold the Triple Crown.
0: Yeah. And, and how those media rights are, are sold, and presumably, if you're looking at other sports. Of, um,
1: and so, you know, think about what, for instance, the NFL commissioner does. They switch games in terms of time a week out. Mm -hmm. More attractive game for the evening or or, or more this or more. They they do that. So a commissioner has real power. And I just happen to believe that we are at a point now where that's not going to happen. Churchill is not giving up all the property rights and other things that are associated with the Derby. Naira is probably not giving those things up. Maryland is in a particularly complex legal position given all the past uh, agreements and, and, and consent decrees and other things. So, you know, we can talk about it, but how much energy is that going to expend I think a better path is to get these people actually talking to each other. I mean, you know, to some extent, have I facilitated that? Yes, I've tried to, whether it's effective or not. But for instance, when we had discussions at Naira about what we're going to do with our various track surfaces with the new Belmont and whatever is done at Saratoga, et cetera, et cetera. The next day, I called Alex Rankin and said, this is what we discussed. Just want to tell you, you know, and don't you think that, you know, David O'Rourke and Karstangian should be talking about these things because I will tell you in the past that that didn't happen. And and, and they do talk about these things. So there aren't surprises.
0: So you think think they genuinely now realize that the sport – can be greater than the sum of its parts and that it should be greater than the sum of its parts rather than thinking well do you know what if racing goes tits up in california if you pardon the expression then that's that's more money for kentucky or that's more money for new york or if it if it goes bad in new york that's more money for kentucky or do you see what i'm saying you always wonder you know however noble our aspirations are whether it, it, it at the end the the short term dollar is always going to outweigh the, the concern for the long-term, coherent future of the sport. I completely
1: agree with everything you've said. I, I think that there are moments where people take that short-term view that money out of his pocket is money in my pocket. I raise my purses. Uh, he has short fields. I get the best jockeys, the best trainers, and off I go. Um, yes, that goes on, and it is very destructive. I mean, think about what we've gone through over the last 30 years. When I got into this sport, yes, if you think of a stallion farm or whatever as a factory, the biggest and best factories were in Kentucky, but there were some pretty significant factories in Florida, Maryland, California, etc. Most of that has gone away. They are not there. The factories are in Kentucky. I mean, we've seen full crop in the aggregate diminish, but we've seen it regionally diminish more. And so, you know, you don't have, I should have put in New York too, you don't have what you did have in these other states. Now, it's wonderful that these factories are, to some extent, flourishing in Kentucky, but if nobody's buying their product, they're not going to flourish long-term. And the other thing that worries me is that whenever people have gone to a state legislature to say, we need something for racing. Yes, they want to hear from the chief executive of the track, but what they really want to hear from is the breeders, the guy that's racing, the the sort of people that inhabit racing the little guy and the person that's keeping open space or whatever it is, but those are the people. And in New York, we would not have a new Belmont without the New York breeders. In Maryland, I don't think we'd have a $400 million bond issue for a new Pimlico without the Maryland breeders. And I really worry at a time when we're getting a lot of money in these states, to supplement purses that's coming from non-racing activity, in other words, gaming, that we have gone over a period of time from having a social license to be the only gaming enterprise to being one that is maybe the stepchild of sports betting and other things. And that's a long, gradual decline but it needs to be reversed, and racing's got to focus on that because racing in the United States is not going to be what we want it to be if it only exists in a couple of jurisdictions. It needs to exist on both coasts, and it needs to exist, obviously, in Kentucky, but it's really critical
0: that it exists on both coasts. And, and most people would tell you that if they were to cast their eye 10 years ahead, they would have graver concerns about the future of racing in California because of uh, racing's uh, more perilous social license there than perhaps in other parts of the of the country. Do you genuinely believe that New York, Kentucky, Kentucky in particular, would give significant um, national assistance to, to California if it needed it?
1: I don't know. But I do think that that question is probably going to get called at a certain point in time. I mean, to some extent, Heise is recognizing the disparities in jurisdictions and wanting to keep things alive. I mean, New York is paying a whole lot more for its regulatory environment than, you know, a state with a much lower purse structure. Um, There are going to be other things that are going to occur where, you know, the good of all needs to. To, to take precedence over the good of one particular place. Um, most sports have recognized that. Obviously, football does it probably better than any other sport. And the fact that those are the most valuable franchises should not escape um, anybody's attention.
0: So is it fair to say then, given what you've just said, I mean, there's quite a lot of common ground here between these first two interviews. As I suggested at the beginning, that you actually think that Rapoli's right, but the execution isn't necessarily your cup of tea?
1: Well, you know, I think he's he's right about some things, about what is compelling about the sport, why you should be, you know, a fan. Um, you know, I don't know that he's really come forward with anything uh, by way of an actual plan which, you know, is important in the final analysis. And uh, I think that you you got to work with people. Uh, uh, you know, that, that's true in every part of our lives. And he's going to have to learn how to do that. Otherwise, he's not going to be terribly important to the discussion. I think the other thing that, that um, uh, where I might differ would be to say that he keeps talking about the big owners, and the big owners are going to do this, and the big owners are going to do that. I was in those meetings 25 years ago with the so-called big owners, and the big owners are a very uh, a desperate lot. They all have their different agendas. They A lot of them walk away from racing, do other things, etc. cetera. Uh, it's really at this point uh, the, the two power centers beyond whatever – organizations are around and about in racing, the, the, the most important other parts are the racetracks, and the, and the big trainers. Uh, I can remember being in Naira board meetings when we were talking about Lasix, this was years ago, talking about Lasix, and all the so called big owners in the room, uh, were saying, Well, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And then they went and talked to their trainers about what was going to happen (laughs) and with the next board meeting suddenly they'd reverse their position so you know the trainer's going to determine in a lot of these cases where i'm going to run uh what i'm going to do and by the way and if you don't like it you know don't let the door hit you in the rear end on your way out
0: sometimes rightly but often not rightly i've always felt that the trainers have an extraordinary level of influence over the way that the sport is run um do we allow our ever dwindling fan base to have enough influence over the way that the sport is run? It seems to me their voice is rarely heard as meaningfully as it should be.
1: I mean, we've done some polling. We, you know, I, I'm sure we could do more. It's hard to get a real sense of it. I, I know that, um, you know, when McKinsey, who we use a lot because they they're good, and they also have people that really care about racing, so you know you you're not sort of uh, having to relearn something.
0: But I tell you um, what, McKinsey don't come cheap, Stuart. Is this this must be costing well, racing an absolute fortune?
1: Well, you know, yeah. I mean, you you start with a million up uh, for any of these studies. Um, is, it, is it worth it? Is this not something yeah, that? Yeah, it is worth it. it is worth it. I, I, I totally think it's worth it. I can remember one time uh, my cousin, Denny was, Phipps, was chairman of the jockey club. And Denny constantly said, The reason we're not doing well with betting is we're taking too much out of the betting dollar. We ought to take less and allow people to, you know, we're cleaning them out at the end of the day. McKenzie came in, doesn't mean that Denny's wrong, they're right, doesn't, whatever. They said, No, that's not it. You should take that out, but you should give rebates. You should know everything about that person that's betting. As a requirement of their betting, you ought to know where they live, what their income level is, what other things they bet on, everything that you can possibly know. Because, by the way, your competition knows all that. When you go into a casino, they figure out those things about you. So totally different viewpoint. Um we don't, We know more now than we did about who, who's betting on our races, but we don't know anything like what others know. And, of course, a lot of the rebating and other things have taken place away from racing. In other words, it's not Naira that's doing it. It's an offshore uh, activity that we really don't control. So, you know, it's you're right. We're, we're, we're not where we need to be.
0: In terms of giving the fans an experience that is commensurate with what, well, they, with, with what they're spending.
1: That's right. And, I mean, we have to do better. You know, I think a very important moment in the sport's long history is going to be, you know, what happens when Belmont opens, reopens. From my point
0: of view, the design is an absolute mm. tense. Well, you've actually got an opportunity that hardly anyone's had for ages, which is to create a state-of-the-art facility that can compete with with proper sporting and, and other entertainment venues. I mean, I, we have a, a situation here, and I've been talking about it a lot on the podcast, and I think, generally speaking, the tracks in this country are probably in slightly better repair than the ones in the in the States. But I often think, you know, if I was taking somebody here for the first time, it's just a bit crap it's just not good enough relative to how to how good you know your your concert venues are now for example uh, or your theatres are getting so much better than they were in the 60s and 70s our race tracks have stood, stood still I know there was a, a distinct moment last year when i was watching horses run for 000, 000 a million dollars around a facility that you know frankly probably should have been bulldozed 40 years ago and you're thinking somewhere along the line we've not got this right it's supposed to be an entertainment business you're right
1: um you know we rely so heavily on the betting dollar whereas a lot of other sports and including steeplechase jump racing in this country rely on hospitality, on sponsorships, on all sorts of other things. Uh, we are way over on one end of the spectrum in terms of how we make our money. And part of it is that that we don't have the facilities that suggest to a sponsor that they would like to send their clients out, you know, for a day at the races. Uh, and that is a problem. Uh you know it's being addressed in certain jurisdictions but it is still you know more of a problem than it needs to be
0: so what is the new belmont park going to look like how is it going to be different
1: well i mean it's it's going to be very airy you're going to be able to move around you're going to be able to go from the front side to the back side very quickly and easily you know while still being in the building there are lots of different entertainment spaces the i i and, it, and it's a breathtaking design i mean it looks fabulous and so uh, you know i'm very excited about it um you're going to have uh, you know hopefully a good link with the um with the uh, arena that's next door the you know the paddock's going to be well integrated you're going to be able to watch horses in the paddock from above the way you would at Ascot or some other place. And I, I think it incorporates a lot of what's done elsewhere, particularly places like Ascot and, and you know, maybe in Japan. And, and you know, I think it's a really, really good attempt to get it right.
0: In that 60 Minutes interview, uh, Cecilia Vega asked, can the sport be reformed? Or is it too late? What do you think? Oh, I think it can
1: be reformed. Um, you know, number one, it has to be. Uh, not going to exist uh, with, you know, the amount of money we're getting from non-gaming sources if we're not, you know, something that people are proud of. So it's got to be. And I think we're on our way. Uh, I mean, the point I made over and over again that did not see the light of day, is how bad the state regulatory system was. I mean, just think of New Jersey, where Mr. Navarro was winning every race he pretty much entered, was in a bar crowing about how he was the juice man, and nothing happened, basically. I mean, that's how bad it was. And it wasn't just New Jersey to single them out. Um, you know, I, I I made a lot of enemies 10 years ago when I said how bad Pennsylvania was. that it was just awful. And they were doing things down there at a regulatory level that were just extraordinarily bad. So I said to to her, you know, what if you did those things in football? Or baseball. I mean, think of when the Houston Astros were accused of stealing signs, and the only people were some very sleepy sports commissioners in Texas that were supposed to do something about it. I don't think a lot would have been done. Uh, And so, you know, it's not the people in racing that are bad. The people in racing are like anybody else. There are a certain number of people that are bad there are a certain number of people that are great and they're a lot like the rest of us who you know are tempted or you know one way or another but over time if you see nobody is regulating you you see the money there you see somebody else gathering horses gathering purses gathering owners and you can't pay the check I mean, you can't pay the bill. I mean, and nobody's watching the store. I mean, why should we think that we would get any result other than what we got? And that's why I'm so passionate about Heisa, because it is the opportunity for us to do what other sports have done.
0: People have speculated as to your own future as chairman of the, the Jockey Club. Stuart, how long are you in this, in this gig for?
1: I don't know. I just retired as chairman of Bessemer. So I don't want it to be an epidemic, you know, but I I don't believe in doing things forever. Uh, But, you know, that's a consideration or a conversation that I would have with the stewards of the jockey club and whatnot. And I think that, you know, over time there'll be change at the jockey club. I, 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 uh, but, you know, I'll probably save that conversation for, uh, uh, the stewards and I wouldn't be looking for any
0: immediate, uh, changes. Yeah. So you've still got the appetite to lead.
1: I do. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think you can do these things forever. Um, and I do feel like, uh, particularly Jim and I and, uh, you know, the others, Matt Juliano and, uh, you know, Mark Summers, Bill Lear. I mean, we, we set ourselves out on a mission in about 2015 and the amount of time, the amount of conversations, um, you know, you, it's a little bit like a race, you know, you, you but you run to the finish mm-hmm. and, um, and I do, I'm very proud of what they all did and what we've accomplished. And, 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 you know, so um, nothing's forever, but, um, but I'm very comfortable being there and I've got a good group of stewards that I like working with and a staff that I love
0: to be around. Stuart, Johnny, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. You've been listening to the second episode of the USA Interviews, a Nick Luck Daily production. This episode of the Nick Luck Daily podcast was sponsored by George Hills and the White Horse Insurance Group. Ensuring the finest thoroughbreds around the world, George Hills of the White Horse Insurance Group is your trusted partner for your bloodstock insurance needs. Providing an independent and bespoke service by horsemen for horsemen, you'll find George Hills and the White Horse Insurance Group to be a valuable and dependable part of your team. Look forward to having you with us next month when my guest will be the chief executive of the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority, Lisa Lazarus.